All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the first two verses tonight. And uh, I was reminded of the sermon, talked to several people this, this morning and, and after the sermon, and even Roger tonight, mentioned that we ought to be thankful that we do go to a church that is incredibly kind, and that if there's anybody in our church, we know that. I hope you know that. That if there's anybody in our church who's ever hungry, we will feed you. If there's anybody in our church that ever needs uh, clothes on their back, we'll give you clothes. And we have a church that is so incredibly kind, and we ought to be so incredibly thankful to God for giving us a place like this. Uh, so Second Timothy, or First Timothy chapter 5, and we're going to change a, a little change of directions here in chapter 5 as we spend almost the entire chapter 4 talking about pastors with the bullseye directly aimed at me, at my heart, at the ministry I do, at the preaching that I do. And now in chapter 5, we go from the pastor to the people that he pastors. It talked about it in, in chapter uh, 4, verse 12. He talked about being an example unto the believers. And he talked about in verse 16 that you'll save yourself and those that hear you. So now he goes from the pastor who's to be the example to the people he's being an example to. From the, from the, the people, from the pastor to the people that he's pastoring. Uh, so that's what we're going to look at tonight. I think it's very practical. I think it's helpful. I think it's, it's very specific in that he's going to teach us tonight how to get along in the church. I almost titled it that, that, how to get along in church. And we need to hear that. But more directly, more specifically, he's going to say how to deal with sin in the church. And sin must be dealt with in the church. I think a great many disasters could be avoided if we followed these two verses in chapter 5. On how to deal with sin in the church. So let's stand together. And you won't be standing long because we're going to look at two verses. Very simple, very direct, very uh, to the point. Just two simple verses, uh, how to get along, how to interact, how to deal with sin in the church. And it says in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, and the younger as sisters, with all purity. And that covers everybody that there could be in the church and how we treat every one of these different groups. So tonight we're going to learn how, how to interact, how to get along, how to deal with sin in the church family. So let's pray together and we'll look at these two verses. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to gather tonight. And I've already mentioned it, but I want to praise you that you've given us a church that is incredibly kind. That there's not anybody who would ever step foot in this church that if they had a need, we wouldn't do our very best to meet it. And I love that about our church. I can stand here tonight and I can say that the church has been that for me, my wife, my five kids. That any need that I've ever had, they've met it. And I thank you for that, God. We've got a kind church. And I pray, God, tonight as we study this, that you would teach us not only how to be a kind church, but teach us how to um, get along in church. I know there's a lot of things that could rip our church apart. And God, I'm careful every single day to watch and make sure there's nothing slipping in that could ruin what you're doing here. And God, this is one of them, that we could not deal with sin in the church or that we could deal with it wrong. So God, teach us tonight, teach me tonight, as I, as I go through this, these two verses, how to deal with sin in the church family. God, bless this time, and we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You be seated. It's, it's very common today, I don't know if you guys pay attention, but I do, but it's very common today to see open and rampant sin within the church. That sin is not just rampant in our society, and it is all around the world, 
uh, maybe even getting worse than it's ever been. But sin within the church has become uh, uh, rampant. It's, it's everywhere within the church walls. And churches today overlook it. They turn a blind eye to it. I, I would call these churches the frozen churches. because, And I've used that for a long time. They're, they're frozen because they just let it go. Let it go. And if you if you got a daughter who watches frozen movies, you'll get that. But it's just let it go, let it go. It'll cause problems if we do anything about it. So we just got to let people do whatever they want to do, and and we'll avoid it at all costs. We'll never correct anybody within the church. There was a pastor who said this from the pulpit last Sunday. He said, and this is him bragging before his congregation, big church, mega church in Florida, every truly healthy church has heretics and sexually immoral people in the membership. That, that's a terrible statement. That's not a biblical statement at all. And what he's saying is we, we, we just let it go. We, we let sin run rampant within our, our church. And that's, that's not biblical. But a lot of churches today just let it go. And they let it go because if we deal with it, we know it will make somebody mad. And pastors want to be liked just like anybody else. So a lot of pastors, in order to keep the peace and keep the unity and and keep the heat off of them, they'll just let it go. It sounds judgmental for us to correct sin. And people will look at you and say, isn't the church a place for love and acceptance? And we're all all sinners and we all are, are allowed to come in here and live however we want to live. So you're just being judgmental. So we stay away. We We let it go. I know it's hard to do. It's a hard thing to deal with sin. But who wants to have that conversation where you're in sin and I'm, I'm going to come and have a heart to heart and tell you you're wrong and you need to correct that. It's hard. And also if you correct sin in the church, it won't, it definitely won't grow a church. John MacArthur said this, if you correct church members, they'll never stand for it. You'll empty the place. You can't run around sticking your nose in everyone's sin. He said, that's how people will believe today. Just keep away from it. It'll never grow a church. You'll run people off. He says, that, that's how people do today. If they want to grow a church, don't correct sin. So the correction of sin within a church is rarely, if ever, done. You just don't see it. But it's a biblical thing that we must do. You see it throughout the Bible. Jesus said in Matthew 18, when he talks about two or three being gathered together, he's talking about church discipline. That we must come and, and correct our brother who is in sin. He mentioned, Paul mentioned it in 1 Corinthians 5, when there was open sexual sin within the church, and they were letting it go and even bragging about it, and Paul said, you have to deal with this. This kind of thing isn't even being done out there. So we don't avoid it, we, we deal with it. And that's exactly what he's telling Timothy here, that sin must be dealt with. And there was sin in, in this church that Timothy had to deal with. Serious stuff going on. We we went four chapters. I can't believe we've already went four chapters. It feels like we just started First Timothy. I know it was like seven months ago, but still. And all the things that we've seen, the elders aren't qualified. Deacons aren't qualified. Women are trying to take over. Feminism is, is working its way into the church. People are shipwrecking their life. There's false doctrine all over the place. There's some serious sin in the church at Ephesus. And Timothy's aware of it. He didn't want to deal with it. He's young. It says he's being despised because of his youth. He's not sure how to deal with it. How do I deal with these things? In his whole letter, four chapters, Paul's been telling him, deal with it head on. 
I want you to take care of this. Tell them they can't teach anymore. Women, you aren't qualified to teach. And false teachers, stay away from those things and, and deal with it. And he's been very straightforward with it. So he says, deal with it head on. And now he tells him, here's how. You've got to handle it with care. That's what he's going to say. You don't come in punching. You handle it with care. So he goes down this list. And in these two verses, he tells him how to deal with sin in the church. How to get along in the church. And I believe this is so practical for every single one of us. This isn't just me dealing with sin. But as a pastor is here to do that, if I, if I see it in, in somebody's life, I need to deal with it and deal with it like this. And if you see it over here in somebody's life over here, then you've got to deal with it. Same thing over here. If you see somebody on this wing who's, who's in some type of sin, you've got to deal with it. We've got to be correcting each other in the church, keeping a watch over each other's souls. And this isn't just in the church. I think this is good in the family that, that if, if your child is in sin, this is how you correct it. If your parents are in sin, this is how you correct it. This is a, a, a very practical and wise way to interact with each other in correcting sin. So we're going to look at this. This is It must be dealt with and it must be handled with care. So I'm going to give you two points tonight. Two verses, two points. Very quick, very easy. We'll be out of here in no time. Looking at verse 1, I want to show you how to deal with sin in the church. Number one, he gives us the plan to deal with sin. There's a plan here in verse 1, and it's really just the first few ver- few words of verse 1. Here's the plan. He gives us the do's and the don'ts of dealing with sin. Just very sip- simple here. Here's the do's and the don'ts. The plan on how to deal with sin. First, he gives us the don't. And it's in that first word, don't rebuke. You see that? Don't rebuke. It's very clear. Do not rebuke. Rebuking someone is okay. 2 Timothy 4.2, it tells a pastor when he's preaching to reprove and rebuke. That word there is, is to warn and to let someone know they're in the wrong. That's okay. It's okay to rebuke somebody, but this is a different word here than they used anywhere else in the New Testament. Actually, this word rebuke here is the only time it's ever used. And this word would be translated strongly rebuke. It's a much harsher word. It, it, it means to be harsh. It means to strike. It means to be violent. It means the actual word here rebuke means to hit someone with a fist. But he's not saying here don't hit someone with a fist when you're correcting them. You may feel like it sometimes. He's saying don't Strike them not with your fist, but with your words. He's saying here, don't verbally assault them when you're correcting them. Don't be harsh with them. Don't be abusive with them. Don't be offensive with them. This is not, that's not how to do it. And I've seen it done this way in, in churches that, that somebody would correct someone with sin and they come at them with a very harsh and mean and, and judgmental and, and finger pointing and, and, and speaking down to. And you come at them in a rebuking way like this. That doesn't correct people, it pushes them away. He's saying don't do that. Don't be overly harsh when you're correcting. I think you can do that at home. I've had to learn that with my own kids. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger. 
Don't be overly harsh. Don't be overly negative. Don't be overly abusive with them where you're beating them down every time you correct them. And it's not correcting them, it's pushing them away. That's not how you do it. That's what he's saying. Your pastors, that's not how you do it. Parents, that's not how you do it. You don't correct in this way. Do not rebuke. I mean, I've seen it done this way. And it always causes more problems than it fixes. And then he gives us, but do this. You said that we're, we're just in the first few words here. Do not rebuke, but entreat. There's your do. Do not rebuke, but do this instead. Instead, and I love this word. This word is so different than rebuke. This word, but do entreat. What a great word. Perikaleo is, is, is the Greek word. And it means to, and it's used sometimes to describe how the Holy Spirit comes into our life. Jesus said, I'll send you the comforter, the paraclete. And this word is translated, I implore you. You see this? I, when, when I, and I meant to do that. When I use the word do not rebuke, I'm being very harsh and, and stern. And, and even, even in, in, as, as I was going over this, I thought, as I'm saying this, I need to have a very, very, very like a scowl on my face. Like I'm, I'm mad while I'm correcting you. That's rebuke. Don't do that. But instead, you see how calm I got? Instead, you entreat them. You come alongside them. You implore them. You exhort them. You plead with them. You encourage them. You comfort them. You're coming alongside of them. I, I've got two examples here for you. That in, in, in the other one, you're coming face to face with them. And it's almost like you're, you're grabbing them by the neck. It's, it's, it's angry. It's, it's mean. It's a, abusive. That's not how you correct someone. And the other one is you're coming alongside them. And instead of choking them, you're putting your arm on around their shoulders and helping them. It's used to describe someone helping somebody who's hurt. You've seen coaches when players get hurt out in the in a game, they'll they'll come out and they they put their arm around them and they help them off the field or off the court. That would be what this word is. I'm I'm entreating you, I'm helping you. I'm I'm uh, helping someone who's hurt. I'm helping someone who's down. That's how we view people who are in sin in the church. There's someone who needs our help. So we're coming alongside to help them. We approach them not with a, a mean, scowl, angry, re ready to fight. We approach them with a, an imploring and entreating. I'm, I'm here to help you because you're going a direction that's hurting your life. I'm here to strengthen someone who's weak. To encourage someone who's about to give up. Again, it's the loving arm around the shoulder. It's not the hands to the neck. There's an old quote, and I, I couldn't tell you who said it, but it said, correction should be applied in such a way that it doesn't destroy our charity. You're going to somebody who's losing the battle. They're in the Christian fight and they're losing the battle and they're beaten down and they're going in the wrong direction and I'm walking up to them to help them in the battle. You're, you're, you're going to somebody who's in the ditch that they're, they're off the straight and narrow. How many people do you see in churches that get off the straight and narrow and they're going in the wrong direction and they're falling in the ditch and their life is in danger? I don't go to them and scowl at them and, and rebuke them and be mean to them. I go to them and say, you need to get back on the straight and narrow. You're ruining and destroying your life. 
I implore you. I entreat you. Please come back. That's how we do it in church. We're not mean about it. We're loving about it. We care. We come alongside with meekness and and gentleness and and kindness. It's never a self-righteous correction or a vindictive correction or a mean correction. It must always be a loving correction. That I walk up to my kids and correct them because I love them. Not in a mean, abusive, harsh way, but in an entreating way. So that's the plan. Do not rebuke, but do entreat. That's how we do it. If that's the plan, he's now going to give us the people that we do that to. And he goes down a list here. And there's four different groups. And I want you to notice this. It's all family. The words that he uses here describes the family. He's not talking about correcting outsiders. He's not talking about wolves. He's talking about sheep. He's talking about in the house of God. There's a different approach with, with talking about somebody to somebody on the outside than correcting someone on the inside. So now he gives us these four groups. And I told you it's going to go quick. We just have four groups. So do not rebuke, but do entreat. And then he gives us the first one. First group would be called older men. You see that there, rebuke not an elder. He's not talking about pastors there. He's talking about men who are older. Older than who? You say, older than who? Older than Timothy. Timothy's between, uh, probably between 35 and, and 39. So now he's talking about anybody who's older than Timothy. Somebody who's considered an elder, uh, more mature, more wise. Anybody over 40 in that time was consider, considered mature and wise. As soon as I had my birthday a year or so ago, I became mature and wise. <laughs> Before that, I was foolish and immature. And now, it's just like, like that. But that was the general rule. Anybody over 40 and up was considered elder, mature and wise. Anybody below was considered immature and foolish. So he says the elder. This is someone older than Timothy. How does Timothy approach somebody who's older than him to correct them? That's the question. Old enough to be Timothy's father. How would Timothy go about correcting older men? That's a tough job. And these older men were fallen for false teaching and we've already seen that in, in this church. Younger Timothy walking up to older men and telling them they're wrong. How does he do that? This usually doesn't go well. I've actually done this before. Young, foolish, immature Josh has walked up to older men in the church to correct them. Shaking in my boots. This usually doesn't go well. Older men usually don't accept correction from younger men very well. You know that. It's just a general rule. Who are you to tell me? I'm wise and mature. You're immature and foolish. I'm not taking that from you, young man. You're with me on that. So how in the world does Timothy approach someone older and correct them? What's this? This is so good. Rebuke not an elder, but treat him, comfort him, implore him, entreat him, come alongside him like you would your own father. That's what he says here. In our day, that may not be a big deal. 
when everybody is okay with dishonoring and disrespecting fathers. We live in an age where the older people are not respected at all in our culture. We don't respect anybody who's older than us. We don't respect our moms. We don't respect our dads. But in that day, in the Jewish culture, the highest respect in the world went to fathers. So Timothy knew this. And Timothy is to approach older men the same way he'd approach his own dad. With honor, with respect, and with love. I would never personally, me, ever, dishonor or disrespect my dad. And if I'm going to come to an older man in the church to correct him, then I'm going to look at him as if he is my dad. And there's no way that I'm going to give a harsh, mean, abusive rebuke in that way. So approach him as a father. I would never do that to my dad, even if he was ever wrong, which I've not found yet. There you go. I was waiting on dad to do it. He's the one who always amens me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Bible's full of this, and I'm going to show you a few of them. Ephesians. You don't have to turn there. But this is this is this is good for me to do it now. I've got my dad sitting here. I've got my, my son sitting here. Ephesians six chapter chapter six, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment that comes with a promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And there's that verse 4, and ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture. There's that coming alongside, and the admonition of the Lord, do it in the right way. That's Ephesians 6, 2. And then you can turn, if you want to, to Exodus, you don't have to turn there, you guys know what this says. I'm going to do it anyway. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 12, honor thy father and mother that thy days may be long upon the land which thy Lord thy God hath given thee. I mean, that, that's, that's simple stuff. Levit- Leviticus does the same thing. 19, uh, Leviticus 19 verse 3. said, ye shall fear, I like that word because we're going to study on Wednesday night, every man his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Same chapter, he goes to verse 32. Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head. <laughs> I looked that up. You shall rise up before the gray-headed man. After 40, you better have some gray hair to show your wisdom. Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear thy God. I am the Lord. It just goes on. I've got another one. Deuteronomy 27, 16. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father, that doesn't honor his father, and all the people shall say Amen. Very clear stuff there. So when you approach, and that's what he's saying here, an older man, you treat him like you would your own father. So Timothy, here's the application. You can't let it go. Older men, and it happens in churches. The older men, we're scared to death of the older men. We want to respect them. We want to honor them. We want to make sure that, that we don't do anything that, that we shouldn't do. So, so some churches, some pastors just, just stay away from it. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm not going to correct an older man. But they, they must be corrected. Older men must be corrected. All sinners, all men need to be corrected at some time. So Timothy, you can't stay away from it. You must do it. You just do it with honor and respect. And I'll say this, older men should be the most correctable men in the church. 
I think that they should be the easiest to correct. They should be the easiest for young pastors to pastor. I don't know why it's the opposite. Older men are oftentimes the hardest people to pastor. Old people, and I'm seeing that as I'm getting really, really old and hoary head. (laughs) That you should get sweeter and sweeter with age. But it seems like for a lot they get more bitter and more angry with age. They should look at all that they've been through and understand, yes, I need correction just as much as anybody else does. And if God has put that man or somebody else who's correcting in my path, then maybe I should be open and listen to what he has to say. This is how you correct an older man. It had to be done. I've had to do this before in this church. And I didn't do it like this. I've done it wrong and I regret it. If I'd known this years ago when I had to do this, it would, have, it would have saved a lot of trouble in our church. I've, I'm learning. I'm getting the, the hoary head. Moving from the older men, what's next? The younger men. It says in verse, the, the next part of the verse, as the father and younger men, here's the younger men. Same, it continues, same sentence, same thought. Here's for the younger men. And these younger men, who would they be? If the older men were older than Timothy, the younger men would be? Younger than Timothy. They'd be around the same age or a little bit younger than Timothy. And you say, how is this wrong? You should have, Timothy should easily be able to correct young men. Yeah, I think Timothy would have an easy time correcting young men. But I believe that it's natural for younger men to not want to take correction. Younger men are rebellious. They think they're always right. They think they can do no wrong. And they look up to some guy and they say, who do you think you are looking down on us and telling us what to do? So now he's got to correct these young men. So how do you do that? He says here, and the younger men, you treat them as brothers. Not as a son, but as an equal. A pastor only has two types of men in the church. Those who are his elders and those who are his equals. He looks down on no one. So this means you approach them how you treat your own brother. Now, I don't, I don't have a brother, but I have a friend in my life who I was in a crib with, and we've been friends our entire life, and we still get together every single morning to work out together. And if anybody in my life is a brother, he's a brother. And I thought, how would I approach him to correct him if he was wrong? And here's what I come up with. When I approach my brother, when, when, when he's wrong, I'm going to come with honesty. I don't have to walk on eggshells with my brother. I don't have to go in and kind of, kind of make sure that every one of my words are, are just right. It's, it's not formal. It's, it's very direct and, and, and open and honest with your brother. You can look at him and say, shoot me straight. Tell me how it is. I don't want you trying to, to mumble around with, with a brother. You can come in and say, hey man, here's what's going on. And not just honesty, but with loyalty. I I can go to my brother and I can say, I'm on your side. I'm for you. I want what's best for you. I'm not against you in any way at all. I am for you. If you're in trouble, I'm here to help. If you ever got a flat tire, you call me at any time of the night and I'm there to help you. Whatever it is you need, I'm here for you. Brothers need to know that their, their brother's always there. That when they approach, they need to know he loves me and he'd never do anything to hurt me. 
And lastly, with brotherly love. I love that phileo love. You love your brother. And if you love your brother, love would never... I want to get this right. Love never takes your side if you're wrong. We hear that today. That If you love them, you'll accept them. If you love them, you'll approve of them. If you love them, you just, just let them live however they want to live. But love never takes your side if you're wrong. If my brother's in the wrong, I will never take his side. That's not love, that's hate. Love never turns a blind eye when their brother is destroying their life. If you're shipwrecking your life, my brother that I love and I'm loyal to, my brother that I'm honest with, if I see him falling in a ditch, love says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to do everything I can to pull you out. That's love. Love never, ever affirms a sinful course that you're living. It never accepts. It never allows. That's called hate. That's not love. We need to know what love is. You see that everywhere. I see a t-shirt at a game last night. That you got to uh, love all, y'all. You know all those things that they're saying now? They don't have any idea what love is. Love never lets anyone destroy their life. That's hate. So if I see my brother and he's in sin and he's destroying his life and he's going down the wrong road, I'd have to hate him not to say something about it. I've got, again, a, a friend that's like a brother to me and I would never let him do anything to destroy his life and my lips stay sealed. I'd have to hate him. Do you know what love does? Love corrects a brother. Love calls a brother to God's standard, not his standard. Love calls to truth, not lies. Love wants what's best for a brother, and what's best for a brother is what God wants for a brother. Now I'll give you something else that love does. Love would expect the same thing out of that brother if it was me in the ditch. I want you to tell me the same thing. That's brotherly love. And in the church today, we need more brothers like this than brothers that are out in the world letting their brothers live in sin. This is what we need in the church. Brotherly love that looks at you and says, you're going the wrong way and you need to to fix that. So treat them like a brother because that's what brothers do. I tell my boys that all the time. I got Isaiah and Christian. I say, you've got to have each other's back. You've got to love each other. If he's in trouble, you're there for him, Isaiah. And if Isaiah's in trouble, Christian, you're there for him. Because that's what brothers do. Yeah. Yeah. In the church, we're brothers. We've got to be there for each other. Yeah. And I'm not going to pat you on the back while you ruin your life. I'm not going to say, all right, live in sin. Good for you. Love you. That's not love. I might as well be saying, hate you. And letting you go and destroy your life. If I correct a brother and he turns his back on me, that's on him, not on me. Correct a brother and expect the same thing. Be encouraging to godliness. We desperately need brothers like this in the church today more than ever. 
Galatians 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. And how do you do it? In the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Knowing that it could be me in those same shoes. Next, back to 1 Timothy. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and younger men as brethren. I thought about skipping the next one. Because <laughs> I think it's the hardest one. And elder women, older women. What would older be? If elderly men are older than Timothy and the younger men are younger than Timothy, then the elderly women would be older than Timothy. They'd be someone who's old, over, we'll, we'll say 60, 70, 80, something like that. <laughs> this is tough. You want to know who some of the most dangerous people in the church are? I won't even say it. My dad laughed. We'll blame it on him. <laughs> He's never wrong. <laughs> Yeah. But I tell you, Timothy's having some problems with older women, and he is. Um, you see in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, even so, talking about deacons, wives, they, they must be grave and not slanderers. He had some slandering going on. Uh, so there's some, there are older women slandering in the church. Chapter 4, verse 7, it says that they're, they're spreading some old wives' fables. They're just spreading stories. That's drawing everybody's attention. In, in chapter 5, verse 6, it says that she's living in pleasure, is dead while she lives. It's talking, again, about widows, older women. There's, there's some women older in the church who are living for pleasure instead of living for God. He's got some women who are doing some things that they shouldn't be doing. And I could even go to chapter three, where he, or chapter 2 where he says, women are trying to preach in the church. Timothy's going to have to tell them how it is. Timothy, I guarantee you, young Timothy, looking at older women doing these things, living for pleasure, slandering, telling stories, trying to preach. And Timothy's thinking, oh no, how do I deal with older women doing that? My approach has always been, God, you deal with it. <laughs> and the answer that God always gives is, I made you pastor so you could deal with it. So how should a pastor deal with it? And he says here, treat elder women like you would your mother. <laughs> how do you treat your mother? I think you treat your mother the exact same way. I'm not going to take you to those verses in Exodus 20, 12 or Ephesians 6. You treat your mother the same way you treat your father. With the utmost honor and respect that you can. But I think that with mother, and this is just me and my own relationship with my mom, that I'm going to approach my dad with, with honor and respect if dad was ever wrong about anything. There's sometimes I think he's wrong, but he's not wrong, and I'm wrong about him being wrong. <laughs> so I approach my dad with honor and respect, and I'm straightforward, and I can talk to my dad. But with my mom, I'm going to be, I'm going to show honor and I'm going to show respect. But with my mom, it's going to be with a little bit more kindness and gentleness even than with my dad. I'm going to take a, an even softer and kinder approach with my mom 
Because I never in the world would ever, ever want to offend my mom. So I'm going to approach older women in the church like I'm walking up to my own mother. Now that'll change how you treat a woman, won't it? Even more careful than you would with a father. See, I think you can be a little bit more straightforward with a father. But I think you're going to have to really handle with care a mother. And, and Paul did this. Let me, let me show you. You, you. you can turn there. Philippians chapter 4, just a few pages over. And I want to read to you because Paul's not telling him to do anything that he's not already done. And, I, and I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, one of the hardest things in the world is to try to correct an older woman in the church. And I've done this. And I've done it wrong before. And I've messed it up before because somewhere, somehow, I wasn't taught 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I'm learning here. I'm becoming more wise and more mature. Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, I like this. Watch how he approaches this. He's getting ready to correct older women. And watch how he walks up to this. You see, and I know he's writing this letter and he's walking up to this, okay? He's building up to the correction. And here's the, the approach. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved. You see that? That's, that's very loving and kind terms. And then he says, and long for, and my joy and my crown. So stand fast in the Lord. And he says it again, my dearly beloved. I mean, he's just, he's just bringing all kinds of love right there, is he not? You're almost sitting there saying, wow, this guy really loves these people. And then he says this, look at, look, look at verse two. And, and I, I, you have to see this. Verse two, I beseech thee, you odious, and I beseech Syntyche, you see, two older women. That they may be of the same mind in the Lord. You know what that means? You've got on one side of the church, and I'd say these two women really didn't like each other. So you had on one side Euodius, and she may be way over here. And Syntyche didn't like you her so much, she'd probably sit in the back of the wing. And and they're going to get up and read this letter, and they're going to hear, "Hey, you Euodius, over here, you need to get along with Syntyche over here." You don't like each other. You're mad at each other. You two need to get along. And he built that up with my dearly beloved, my long for, my joy in my crown, my dearly beloved. I, I beg you, I implore you, you odious and, and Syntyche, be of one mind in the Lord. He didn't say, get along, you old women. <laughs> he said, be of one mind. Get along. Can't we just be at peace? He's approaching them like they're his mother. And look at verse 3. And I, what word is this? Entreat thee. Same exact word he just used in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I come alongside. I'm here to comfort. Also true yoke fellows. See that? Help those women. <laughs> you see that? You guys help them. We need to get along which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, with, with other of my fellow laborers whose names, look at that, are in the book of life. You're saved. You're saved. You've labored together and you've labored with me. You're, you're my dearly beloved and you're my, my long for and my crown and, and my joy. Get along. Do you see how he approached it? 
Man, if you approach that wrong, mad woman over here and mad woman over here, you're going to have split in the church. But Paul dealt with it right. Acknowledges good things and treats, corrects. Correction for older women must happen. You can't let it go, but you've got to do it in the right way. Moving on, I'm going to run out of time. told you it would be a short sermon. Last one. Elder women as mothers, and then the younger. We've already said this. What would younger be? Women who are the same age as Timothy or younger? Younger women below 40. What's wrong with these women? <laughs> I don't even want to tell you. These women in chapter 3, verse 9, they're scantily clad women. They're not dressing like they ought to dress. Can you imagine Timothy approaching that? Walking up to these scantily clad women and saying, hey, you guys might want to wear some more clothes. <laughs> imagine walking up to any woman and telling them what to wear. But he has to do it. He's been told to do that here. And like women, that women ought to adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Not with all this broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. But you need to tell them they need to dress like a woman who professes godliness. Timothy's thinking, oh no. I've got to tell them how to dress. And not only that, it says in chapter 5 verse 13, that they, they, these women, these younger widows, it says, and with all they learn to be idle. They're wandering from house to house. They're tattlers. They're busybodies. They're speaking things in verse 13 that they ought not to. Timothy, you've got to correct these younger women. You're going to have to sit down with them. You're going to have to have a talk with them. How are you going to do that? <laughs> Timothy's thinking, I'll let my wife handle it. <laughs> Or if Timothy thinks like me, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Hey, Steph. <laughs> Steph said, God called you to be pastor, not me. <laughs> so he says here, look, he says, and elder women's mothers. So when these younger women start acting up, how do you correct them? Like you would your sister. Men in the church need to see the younger women as sisters. How do you treat a sister? I've got two sisters. And I'd do anything in this world to protect them. I'm going to guard my sisters. I'm going to not let anybody in this world mess with my sisters. I'm going to defend them. My interest for them is their own personal welfare. That nothing in this world would ever do them any harm at all. That's how you treat a sister. I've had two sisters, I got the two sisters, and I remember growing up thinking any man, any boy who comes in here and tries to date my sisters, they're going to have to come through me first. I had an older sister, there I was, a little bitty boy thinking, and you put them up, like a little, little scrappy dude from Scooby-Doo, let me at them, you know. <laughs> That's how you, you protect your sisters. But he adds here, and when you correct your this is the only one he adds a little caveat, caveat here. And the younger as sisters, and you better do it with a guardrail. You better have boundaries with the younger women. So what is this? He's telling us here to be very, 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 I'm going to add two more, very, very careful when you correct younger women. And make sure that you're guarding your purity and her purity. 
because the pastor correcting the younger women could easily look bad or it could easily become bad and it could destroy a church. So you better be very extra careful when you're correcting a younger woman. That's what he says here. Keep it godly. Treat them like a sister. Guard their purity and your purity. Don't you dare do anything that even has a scent of something bad about it. Amen. You say, well, how do you do that? <laughs> I got six more points for you. <laughs> I want to give you, and I, I was just reading on this, and I came across John MacArthur's six principles to follow when it comes to dealing with women as a pastor. And I think it goes for not just pastors. I think it goes for, and I'm, I'm doing this because I think that my boys need to hear this. I think all men need to hear this. When I read what MacArthur said there, I said, this, I, I'm, just going to, I'm, I'm not even going to try to, just to change it up. This is just exactly what I need to do. So I'm going to go through it real quick. This is for all, all men, for all pastors, for men in the workplace, here's what we do. This is very important stuff. Okay, now I want you to turn with me to, to the book of Proverbs. Here's what you do. And, and again, this, is, this comes from MacArthur's commentary on this. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25. The, the number one thing you got to do is avoid the look. This is so good. Avoid the look. It says in, in Proverbs 6, verse 25, Lust not after her beauty in your heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. So here, here's the thing. Men, Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes that I won't let her look lure me in. I'm going to guard my eyes that, that because that's where it first happens, is it not? The first thing you do is you look with your eyes and that draws you in. So I've made a covenant with my eyes that I won't let the beauty of another woman lure me in. Avoid the look. There's a responsibility for men not to look and for women to dress modestly so as not to attract men. That's not popular to say. But women need to attract men with their godliness and not with their bodies. That's, that's a good statement. How a woman dresses speaks volumes about her. She could dress, I'm godly, or she could dress, I'm available. So men, guard your eyes. Women, guard how you dress with your, on, cover your bodies. Number two. Avoid flattery. <laughs> I'm going to go through these quick because I'm, I'm running out of time. Avoid flattery. Proverbs 6.24, right there where you're at. To keep thee from evil women, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Don't ever. This, this is how it works. It starts with your eyes that you see and you want and, and you, you gaze and, and it lures you in like a, a lure on a, on a fishing line where a fish comes after it and you, you got to guard your eyes so you don't see that and, and all this stuff is everywhere. I, walk, I, I feel like I'm walking around like this half the time. I'm guarding my eyes. I don't want to see it on TV. I don't want to see it at, at, at games. I don't want to see it anywhere. And then it goes from the eyes to the ears where a woman could easily lure you in with flattering words. And, and you could be sitting down with a woman and she could easily say, Oh, you're so good looking. That's flattery. Ain't none of us good looking. I ain't going to listen to that stuff. Don't listen. It's not true. 
She's just trying to, not even hurry, the, the, the devil's trying to lure you in. Number three, avoid the thoughts. We've got the eyes, we've got the ears. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to it. I mean, a woman could say, you're so smart. I'm like, you know what I am? And Steph never tells me I'm smart. And it just lures you in. Don't listen to it. And then your thoughts, it says in Proverbs 6.25, lust not after her beauty in your, your heart. Learn to control your mind. What you dwell on, and if you dwell on lustful things, you're already headed down a bad road. Guard your heart. Number four, this is Proverbs 7. Listen to this. Avoid meeting. And MacArthur does a fantastic job of putting this together. Avoid looking. Avoid the flattery of hearing those things. Avoid the, the thoughts that it, it dwells on your mind. I had a preacher tell me one time, you, you can't control if a bird lands on your head, but you can control if it puts a nest on your head. You, 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 can't, you can't control the thoughts that, that come into your mind, but you can control how long those thoughts are there. So I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to watch my mind. I'm going to watch my eyes. I'm going to watch my ears. Now I'm going to watch where I go. The meetings. Watch this. Proverbs 7. I'm running out of time. You guys just hang in there. No Super Bowl tonight. Verse 7. And beheld him. And, I, and it's at verse, verse 6. For at the window of my house, I looked through, the, through my casement. And beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man void of understanding. He says, passing through the street near her corner. He went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black, in the dark of the night, it's a secret meeting. And behold, there met him a, a woman with the attire of a, of a harlot and a, a, a subtle of heart. She's loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now, she, now is she without. Now in the streets. She lies in the way in the corner. This is everywhere, it says. And so she caught him. Don't put yourself in position where you ever meet with a young woman alone. Amen. That's not just for pastors. I had a woman tell me one time in, in this church, I don't meet with young women alone. I don't meet with old women alone. And I, that woman called me for a meeting. She said, I want to meet with you in your office. She's not here anymore. And I said, Steph, let's go. And that evening, Steph and the kids came down here. The kids played in here like they always do. Steph sat right back there outside my office. Amen. And that older woman looked at me and she said, we don't need your wife here. I'm not going to do anything. I said, my wife ain't going nowhere. Amen. You don't meet. That's for a pastor. You don't do that. Billy Graham wouldn't eat dinner with any woman. He wouldn't get in a car with a woman alone. He guarded his life uh, where there was never even a hint of a scandal at all with Billy Graham. But as a pastor, you don't do that. As young people, you don't do that. And I, I'll tell my kids, I'll tell my son, don't you ever get caught alone with a woman. Nothing good can happen there. No one-on-ones. No innocent meetings. It either looks bad or it becomes bad. That's wise. Amen. Number five, avoid the house. Look at verse 25 of chapter 7. Let not thine heart decline to her ways, go not astray in her paths. I like this one. For she hath cast down many wounded, yea, Many strong men have been slain by her. 
Her house is the way of hell and going down to the chambers of death. We're going down the path here where we don't look and we don't listen and we don't think and we don't go and meet and we definitely don't go to the house. It's a pastor just the other day that a group of the church came to check on him at the house. They must have knew something was going on and they knocked on the door and there he opened the door standing with his secretary. Ruined the church, destroyed it. Tried to tell him he was innocent. Don't go to the house. Don't be caught like that. And it says there, many, look, look at verse 26. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. She's took down people who thought they were stronger. And it would never happen to them. No one is strong enough to take fire into their bosom and not get burned. It says here, if you go to her house, you might as well be going to hell. If you go down to the chambers of death, you might as well be writing your own tombstone. Last one, Proverbs seven thirteen, avoid the touch. So, so she caught him and she kissed him and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me in this. This day have I paid my vows. This is the last step. Don't do it. Guard yourselves. Keep all, and that back back to, to 1 Timothy, and I'll, I'll close. I probably went way too long on that. It says, with all purity, do everything you possibly can to maintain purity in dealing with younger women. Be very extremely careful, and that's not just for pastors, that's for everybody. Amen. So how do we apply this? And I'll close. How do you apply something like this? I've got a couple things and, and, and we'll be done. First of all, every we're, we're all family in here. Did you, see, did you notice that? As a father, as a brother, as a sister, and as a mother, this is the family of God with all kinds of variety. And we must treat each other that way. That's why the church has always called each other brother and sister in Christ. We're a family. I've always tried to run this church and lead this church as a family. We call our business meetings family meetings. We're one big family here with older and younger and men and women and all types of people in the church that we have to deal with. And we must treat each other how God says to treat each other. And when we do that, we must realize we all need correction. Our family isn't a perfect family. Johnny, I think, said in Sunday school this morning, if you find a perfect church, don't you dare go there because you'll make it imperfect. Every single one of us in this room tonight are imperfect. We all need help. We all have blind spots. We're all surrounded by temptation. We all get off track. So we all need correction. Every single one of us, me included. And we assist in, in their own sin and downfall if we don't correct them. We need to be thankful for people that love us enough to correct us in the church. Amen. A church like the one I started out with that said, every healthy church has heretics and sexually immoral in the church. The most hateful church in the world right there. 
that you let somebody live like that and go down that path and not say a word to them, you hate them. The most loving church in the world is one that corrects sin. And when we do this, we reflect our Heavenly Father and His purity. We want to be a church that reflects our Father and lives the testimony to the world that we are different than the world. A church like I just said that has heretics and the sexually immoral all around in the church is no different than the world. A church that corrects that sin and lives pure lives is so distinct and so different than any other place in the world that we will be the salt in the world that hasn't lost its saltiness and a life that's not hidden under a bushel. We must be a pure church that represents a pure God. That's why we correct. When we do that, we live righteous, we correct sin, and we show the world that God's Word is our standard. We show the world that we are distinctive and holy and separate, and we draw a line that there's certain things that are okay out there that are not okay in here. We draw, I'm going to say that again. That's not even in my notes. I'm getting very wise and mature in my old age. We draw a line when we correct that says there's certain things out there that aren't, aren't okay and you can do them if you want to. But that is not okay in the church. And the churches today are not drawing that line. They're not correcting sin. And the church today looks more like the world than it ever has been. We never look more like God and His holiness than when we correct sin in the church. There was three marks of a healthy church in the Reformation. Three things that was, they would say makes you stand out. This is Martin Luther. This is John Calvin. This is John Knox. This is William Tyndale. The church stood out when it done these three things. This is what makes a church healthy. And it wasn't. It had heretics and sexually immoral in the church. It was... The preaching of the word of God. The practicing of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And correcting sin. And those three things will make us a healthy church. And all of that comes directly out of what God's given us in 1 Timothy. So that is the first two verses on how to deal with sin in the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, this is very practical. I mean, this couldn't be more practical than what it is. I'm amazed at your word. I mean, just the way you've laid things out for us. And then I'm amazed that the church has ignored these things. Here it is. We don't need other books. We have the book. It's given us all things pertaining to life and to godliness. It's given us the order of the church. How to do things here. And God, forgive us for trying to do it our own way. And I believe it's when we try to do it our own way that we mess things up horribly. So help us to do it your way, by your word, by the book, and help us to treat each other like family, like these verses said. And I thank you for teaching me that this week. I learned so much in two days of studying this. And I pray it was good for the people in the pews as they heard it. Help us, God, to treat each other like this to get along in the house of God. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.